0: This episode of Hub Dialogues is a special presentation with Hub advertiser Pathways Alliance. The goal of each episode in this podcast series is to provide Hub listeners with the latest insights and analysis by industry experts and leaders who are acting on Pathways' ambitious call to decarbonize Canada's oil sands production and reach net zero emissions from operations by 2050. For more information on Pathways, visit pathwaysalliance.ca. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. Welcome to this, our continuing conversations with Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Group representing some of the country's largest oil sands producers, all committed to net zero emissions from operations. By 2050, we're looking at how Pathways is setting about achieving this ambitious target, this ambitious goal, talking to different key people and movers in the energy sector. And today we're really fortunate to talk with someone who's scaled the commanding heights of uh, Canada's energy sector. His name is Alex Porbe. He's the former president and CEO of Synovus, one of Canada's largest oil sands producers, currently the executive chair there. And while he was the CEO of Synovus, uh, he was part of a a group that put Pathways together that launched this organization. So we're going to get into all of that with him, plus talk about his thoughts on Canadian energy writ large in a world of increasing energy competition and scarcity. How can a commitment to net zero carbon emissions from operations by 2050 position Canada's energy sector for growth and opportunity in the decades to come? The next voice you'll hear is me in conversation with Alex Porbe, the executive chair of Synovus one of the original founders driving forces behind Pathways Alliance. Alex, welcome to the Hub Dialogues.
1: Thanks very much. Glad to be here.
0: Looking forward to this conversation as we kind of go around the horn at Pathways talking to different people in the organization and associated with it who've had different roles and have different responsibilities. And it's really important to kind of include you now in this conversation as a former CEO of one of the major oil sands producers in the country and someone who was really there at the kind of origins of Pathways. Maybe, Alex, we could begin our conversation by just having you take us back to the moment that the industry, your partners, your fellow CEOs kind of. Thought up this idea that eventually became Pathways. What was the rationale? What was the thinking behind it? What was the spark that created the organization that we know today?
1: Well, it's a really good question, Rudyard. Right and I, I, you know, I think it goes back probably almost three years ago now, and you know, I, I was as as I think all the CEOs of the Pathways partners, we were all doing. Our own activities to improve the environmental performance of the countries and, and reduce CO2 emissions, and I I I had had, a, had and continue to have a pretty regular discussion with with a number of the CEOs. But at the time, it, I think it was Murray Edwards, a you know, famous Canadian businessman and the uh, executive chair of CNRL, and. Murray and I would talk regularly. And I think at, at that time it was with Mark Little, the then CEO of Suncor. And we we're just having a chat and we were talking about how much work we were doing. And I think we all kind of at, at the same time independently came to the realization that, you know, as much as we were at making progress on our own, that if we combined the efforts of of the companies, we would really accelerate our path. To reduced emissions and we felt we could be much more effective advocating for the industry and our efforts and so it was really as i said probably pretty close to three years ago and you know murray made a great comment and he said look the only way this is going to work is if the ceos remain completely engaged and i want to have a 7 a.m meeting every friday morning that everyone has to commit to come to and so here we are three years later. And I, I, we have not missed one of those 7 a.m. meetings. I mean, if you're on a plane, I guess you miss it. But those meetings take place every Friday morning at 7 a.m. and every uh, CEO attends. So I, th- I think it's been really effective from that perspective.
0: At the core pathways, a very ambitious you know, net zero admission from operations by 2050. Was there debate, Alex, about that goal? Because, you know, when you set a goal, the expectations build behind that. There's, you know, going to be arguments about the credibility of the goal. Is it achievable? What was your thinking around around setting that particular objective, which is ambitious and which I think arguably has driven a lot of the energy around pathways because you are trying to do something really big, pretty difficult and pretty important for the country?
1: Well that that that's you know that you're exactly right and and I would tell you there there was actually a a great deal of discussion about you know what were the objectives of pathways were we going to have targets was our target you know going to be net zero and in the early days you know some members had already adopted a net zero target and others had not and and at the end we just decided it like we we could not be more serious about driving emissions out, out of our, our business. And it, it is, a it is a, you know, I, I think the term is, you know, big, hairy, audacious goal. But our, our view was, like, we we need to demonstrate to people how serious we are about this. And it, it is audacious, and, and it is a very demanding goal. But we actually think we, we, we needed to, I think, as a group, we ultimately came to the view that, that we all needed to be in it together and that net zero by 2050. Although there's there's going to be a lot of work to do to get there. We think there are pa- pathways, hence the name. But there are there are multiple pathways for us to get there. R and D continues apace, and and you know the the costs are going to come down. And you know I I think over the next 30 years we're we're going to see a lot of of innovation in driving GHGs out of the production of oil and gas. So we're with that was really. Where head was at, and and we are into this, continuing with that. It's not just some sort of vague uh, goal. We we are actively developing business plans that that we hope will get us there.
0: In a very recent part of your career, you were the CEO, the president of Synovus, not only a significant Canadian energy producer, but on the world stage has a presence important to thinking about the future of energy itself and hydrocarbons as a key component of our meeting our future energy demand. Alex, how do you see this transition of the industry and the oil patch to a net zero target of from operations by 2052, kind of Canada's competitive advantage vis-a-vis other producers around the world? Are they pursuing similar Strategies is there is there a competition here or is this really an an opportunity potentially a a once in an once in an industry's lifetime opportunity to truly differentiate from a majority of the other hydrocarbon major hydrocarbon producers globally?
1: If you look around the world, there are a few countries that are material producers of oil and gas that that have similar commitments. I think Norway would be be an answer, but You know, Norway would be about the biggest of them. I mean, Canada produces, you know, give or take about five or six percent of the world's oil. There is no country on Earth that is pursuing targets even remotely as ambitious as as Canada is. So this is is really uniquely Canadian uh, issue.
0: And what could that mean if before potentially even achieving the goal, if there is a sense amongst the consumers of hydrocarbons that there is this source in Canada that is moving towards you know, a credible timeline to achieve net zero from operations by that mid-century mark, how do you see that, Alex, feeding back on global perceptions of Canadian energy, opportunities possibly for increased foreign direct investment in Canada's energy sector? Is there I guess what I'm getting at is, is there a virtuous circle here, a spin-off, a flywheel that's kind of bigger than just that important objective of net zero? Are there other things that could come as a result of this that would benefit the Canadian economy and benefit our ability to produce cleaner energy for the world as a whole? Yeah,
1: you know, I think the first thing I would say is that, you know, everyone uses this term energy transition. And I think one of the great worries that, that I have, and and this would go to Canadians, Americans, you name it, I think the average person really has no idea of the challenge of decarbonizing modern society. And, y- y- you know, it it is, I described it the other day as a moonshot, and uh, a very august historian, energy historian who was on the panel with me said, He said, no, I disagree. It's like a Mars shot, not a moon shot. Like this is, I think most Canadians kind of have this view that, well, you know, we're, we're going to, we'll build some wind turbines, we'll build some renewables. Maybe we have a little bit of battery backup or storage and we're off to the races. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. So oil and gas represent, you know, somewhere in the range of about, eighty six percent, if I recall, of all energy consumed on the planet and and it is going to be an unbelievable challenge uh, to reduce. and and I, as a result, I, I have a different view. I, I don't think we're going to see a transition, you know, massively away from oil and gas because the the other alternatives really struggle to deliver the same kind of cost, the same kind of reliability as oil and gas. So I really think we're going to see a diversification. We're going to see more, I think we'll see more renewables. We'll see battery technology. I think if we are even remotely serious about moving to net zero, we're going to have to adopt nuclear generation in a very meaningful way. It's the only technology that I'm aware of that can replace gas, for example, or coal in power generation and deliver the same kind of reliability. Uh, I remind people in Canada, we live in a country that is very, very cold, eight months of the year, and we can't afford an inner, you know a, a power uh, source that that is not reliable. But lives depend on it. Hospitals depend on it. You name it. So, I mean, I, I think we're going to see, as I said, much more of a diversification. And I think what we're going to see is oil and gas continue to play a really meaningful role but you're going to increasingly see over time the decarbonization of those uh, of of oil and gas and and so and the theory behind to to go to your question about like what could this mean you know to the industry to the Canadian economy at pathways we've really taken a view that you know if you look at the Canadian oil and gas industry you know, we are world leaders in just about every metric, whether it is rule of law, you know, regulation, tough, transparent regulation, how our industry treats and works with indigenous communities, human rights, you know, these are none of these are issues that most of the world's major oil producing nations actually care about, much less less champion. In our view, the one Knock on Canadian oil is that it is relatively to you know other crude some other crudes in the world you know it it has higher uh, GHG uh, intensity per barrel than than some other oil in the world And and I would argue that is actually much misstated also but our view at Pathways was that if we can solve that carbon problem by decarbonizing the barrel then it actually doesn't matter whether in 50 years the world is consuming 50 million barrels a day or 150 million barrels a day. I think we can state with great honesty that we are the sustainable barrel of oil in the world and Canada should gain that market share. And, and you know, we create a, a durable industry, upstream industry for, for the country. So that's really the thought behind it. But the other point I would make would be, you know, if you look at the U.S. and they, you, you, I think a lot of listeners would recall that several months ago, President Biden came out with a, uh, a legislation called the Inflation Reduction Act. And key in that Inflation Reduction Act was significant uh, funding by the U.S. federal government for carbon capture and sequestration clean tech and and what you're seeing there is the US watched where the ball was going saw that it was going towards clean tech it was going towards decarbonizing oil and gas and i think they made a very conscious decision that they wanted to create through the IRA make the US the world's leader in low carbon industries and and there is a huge opportunity in Canada if if we're able to protect, perfect, you know, carbon capture and sequestration on the kind of scale we're talking about, if we're able to perfect the use of solvents in, say, D uh, production facilities, you know, we we actually have a chance to make Canada a technological leader in decarbonization, and and with all of the benefits that would accrue to our economy, our labor force, industry, that's really where we're driving with this.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca, now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of the Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Great insights. And I think that idea of market share is just so important that, yes, the world could end up using, and maybe it should end up using, less barrels of oil in the future as renewables and other sources of energy come online. But if Canada can, as you say, claim to be able to produce and demonstrate effectively that that lower carbon barrel, then we can sustain volumes at current outputs. That's good for ro- royalties and all those other things that spin off the oil sands that pay for our hospitals, that flow from the province to the federal government, and so on and so on. So I think that's a, an encouraging and rightly optimistic view that we should try to embrace because we need sources of wealth in this country in order to sustain the generous social safety net that we all agree is part of what makes us Canadian, binds us together in a sense of of shared common enterprise. I want to, again, just build on your experience. It's a privilege to talk to someone like yourself who's run a large energy company and talk a little bit about what you're seeing happening out of this horrible war that's continuing in Europe the largest land war on the European continent since World War II, big disruptions in energy. We're seeing, Alex, as you know, kind of new energy alliances that are emerging seemingly between Russia and China, between Saudi Arabia and China, between India and Russia. What is your sense of Canada's opportunity in this moment? And again, how especially dealing with Europe, which has very strong commitments to greening its economy and lowering the carbon intensity of a continent that now includes in a single economic and political unit over half a billion people. Connect those threads for us and talk a little bit just about the energy instability of this moment that we're in and Canada's, again, kind of potential unique competitive advantage that we enjoy.
1: Sure. No, I'd I'd be happy to. Look, I you know, really what we've seen happen in Western Europe and, and in Ukraine, you know, over the last two or three years, I, I think it is tragic. It, it, the, the situation in Ukraine is incredibly tragic. But I think what it also does is it has it is like really caused people, I think, in a very serious way to think about this energy, so-called energy transition, and how reliant right now, you know, regional country economies are on, you know, predictable, reliable supplies of of oil and gas. And you know, I think it, it's very interesting. Uh, I I think pretty much everyone thought last winter we were heading towards a a a complete energy crisis in Western Europe that was really only avoided by. Not only some kind of superhuman efforts by the European countries to find uh, sources of of oil and gas, but also you know really a, a very very mild winter in most of western europe and and I think otherwise we would have seen a, a truly tragic outcome and what it's done I, I think you now i particularly countries are starting to realize that you cannot decarbonize until you have the replacement technology or the new technology in place. And I think there was a bit of an element where, you know, countries were, were misleading themselves, that they, they, they were becoming less reliant on oil and gas when, in fact, they really, they, they really the, they, they didn't have the, the replacement technology in place at scale. And I, what we're seeing now is, you know, you've seen in Canada is a great example. You've seen the governments of Japan, you've seen the government of Germany come to Canada, uh, literally almost begging for LNG supplies, liquefied natural gas supplies, and and I think Canada has to be very very cognizant of this. So we we are blessed as a country with massive supplies of both oil and gas and coal for that that matter in a world which you know those those you know the 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 reliability and the availability of of those commodities is is not what it was because of for example what's what's happening with Russia and and Ukraine and i think canada has an opportunity to be you know almost the the warehouse of the world that we can produce oil, gas, liquefied natural gas, and help these other countries uh, you know, reduce their exposure to uh less reliable suppliers. And, you know, you if you th- I think LNG is a, a great example that, you know, if if you think about LNG going from Canada to Asia, pretty much every uh shipload of that LNG. Is going to be used for producing power and offsetting what would otherwise be coal fired generation. So, even though we may uh, see our emissions go up a little bit because we're, we're producing more product, you know, ultimately we're trying to solve that with pathways. On the other side of it, you know, there's massive benefits for CO2 reduction by keeping those other countries off of, of coal fired generation. So, you know, I think there's I I think energy security has become one of the number one global issues. Canada, fourth largest reserves of oil in the world, 50% of all reserves available for investment by the private sector. I I mean I think I think we owe a duty to the world to make sure that that we continue that supply. And one one point I would say, Rudyard, is, you know. If, if Canada took its production to zero tomorrow, the world would still consume exactly the same amount of oil it was consuming the day before. The only difference is it would be supplied by Russia, Saudi Arabia, you know, you pick the supplier. So we're not actually, you know, we, we like what is going to reduce emissions is companies like us and the Pathways companies actually reducing the the emissions related uh, to the production of their their product and ultimately end users consuming less less product and and taking a, an incredibly hard-headed approach of of shutting in Canadian production and I'm not proposing that anyone is but you know I think a lot of people think well this the, you know we should just stop producing this you know the impact on on global energy reliability and availability and price would be devastating.
0: Yeah. And also in this new world that's much more bifurcated, that seems to be breaking apart into geopolitical blocks, we've got to understand who would pick up that production, what they would use that production for. It's unfortunate that Russia seems to have been able to continue largely its war effort because it is selling so much oil to these uh, mainly former BRICS countries. Alex, what What is your sense about, you know, what you hear from other major energy companies in Europe? You mentioned Norway, but we know that Europe also has very ambitious plans towards decarbonization. Many of those plans are kind of shared with their energy sector. Major companies like BP and others coming forward to to announce uh, significant investments in renewables and to change the kind of mix of energy Production uh, within their enterprises. Some people are hypothesizing that you know Canada needs to be careful in the future about the potential for you know fault lines to emerge between those economies that are significantly reducing their emissions in in operations and production, and on the overall net basis with countries like Canada, which are export-led, that we're, a lot of our economy is GDP, is a reflection of the exports that we send around the world. How important is it for Alex to, for us to, to really get serious about things like what Pathways is doing? Because this could be our passport in the future to trading with other countries who are going to start taking a harder line on their respective partners' policies regarding emissions and the carbon intensity of the products that they produce.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think that is something. I mean, it's certainly something that was on our minds when we, when we set up Pathways. And as I said, our goal of Pathways is, is literally to move the production from Canada's oil sands to the lowest emission uh, oil produced in the world. And, and we think that that really should demonstrably solve that, that challenge and, and that risk that, that you, you talked about, but, you know, I, um, you know, it, it, you just mentioned a little earlier about how Russia has been able to maintain their, their revenues largely through the sale of oil. And what I find is, is, you know, governments in the world, they, they kind of talk a tough, uh, a tough message, but you know, it's interesting. If you need oil and if you need gas at the end of the day, they they seem to they, they you know it, it rather than have their industry their economies go dark, they tend to be able to hold their nose and buy from any number of of producers that couldn't care less about the environment, human rights, you 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 name it. But I you know, I think from from our perspective, we really think we are I hope we're creating a better mousetrap for for global consumers where where they, they can demonstrably see you know what we are doing to decarbonize uh, our our industry you know i i would say one other thing it's kind of interesting we're having this discussion today and i noticed in the paper this morning that shell just announced that they are stepping back from their commitment to green energy and and now going back to continuing to increase their production of oil and gas and i think that's that is a microcosm of, of, you know, one producer, you know, realizing that it is going to be way more challenging and take a much longer time than I think a lot of people have any idea to reduce our, uh, you know, the necessity uh, for uh, oil and gas. I, I, it's going to take a long time. And I think a lot of companies, a lot of com- companies and a lot of countries are starting to realize that. And I, I think that's why you're seeing you know, I think BP has announced a a similar initiative where, you know, they're they're just throttling back the ambition to
0: coincide with the actual ability to decarbonize. Final question, Alex. At The Hub, we love public policy, loving what you're just talking about here, about the importance of of kind of permitting, the need to have the framework in place to do ambitious things. These are huge, multi-billion dollar projects, as you mentioned. Are there are there things that we should be thinking about, Alex, in terms of, you know, incentivizing capital to to join this project, to find ways to get new capital flows into the industry to help affect these these goals so that, you know, producers are there, you're going to play a major role. But we've got all kinds of other schemes going on in the country to try to get capital into Parts of the economy where we think that decarbonization can happen, is that part of what you'd like to see too?
1: you know i we've always been you know leery of of kind of seeking kind of special treatment or handouts, and you know i I actually think there's there's a lot of capital on the sidelines that would be more than willing to invest in the Canadian energy sector, but they're prevented from doing that because of their worry of the uncertainty as to how you know, how, how the federal government is going to treat emissions and what their policy is going to be on emission reduction. And I, and I actually think if, if we're able to reach an agreement between the federal government and the province and our industry about, you know, our pace of decarbonization, the fiscal framework, and some certainty about, about how we're going to make sure these permits are decided on in a, in a timely basis, I actually think there's, there's all kinds of capital that would be willing to invest if that uncertainty was was taken out of of the the equation
0: it's a great insight alex and makes me optimistic that um you know we can do big things but we need as you say the runway the framework to to realize that that potential and those goals so to to get a view from you as someone who's sat in the, the so-called uh cockpit the pilot's chair of one of the big energy companies in Canada is a privilege indeed. I've certainly learned a lot from our dialogue today, and I know our listeners have too. So thank you so much, Alex, for coming on the program.
1: Oh, look, Rudyard, I, I really appreciate it. I, I, I enjoyed the discussion, and I, I hope, uh, I always try to kind of come away from any discussion, you know, with a thing or two to think about, and ho- hopefully I've provided that for your listeners.
0: Absolutely. This episode of Hub Dialogues was a paid promotional partnership with Pathways Alliance. For more information about Pathways and their plans to decarbonize Canada's oil sands production to reach net zero emissions from operations by 2050, visit pathwaysalliance.ca. Are you a leading industry group with an important public policy message? If so, be sure to check out the Hub's new digital marketing platform. You can do that right now at www.hub.com thehub.ca forward slash marketing.